Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. I am one of your hosts, Ted Harrington, and with me here is my co-host, Ben Schmerler. Ben, what's going on, man? Hey, Ted. All sorts of stuff's going on, always. <laughs> There's lots going on. Yeah. And we have our special guest. Her name is Yana. She's the founder and CTO of Orna. And Yana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, guys. It's a big honor to be here. I guess I can uh, spend a couple of seconds introducing myself. So as they mentioned, my name is Yana. I'm a co-founder and CTO at Orna. We are a Canada-based cybersecurity startup. My personal favorite specialty, I think, in the entire field of cybersecurity is digital forensics and incident response. And so 99% of my work right now is, is revolving around that area. Nice. So you and I spoke a few weeks ago and you said you had many stories about digital forensics and I might have even cut you off. I might have been like, this is too good. Don't tell me this right now. I want to talk about this on the podcast. <laughs> so I now want to hear the story or stories. Well, so maybe I changed my mind and I don't want to tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> this would be such an embarrassing moment for that. That would be great. <laughs> Absolutely. I have loads of stories, especially when it comes to incident response. The problem is the NDAs, right? I can't share too many details. So in the stories that I'll be telling today, it may or may not be related to different companies, different times, different breaches, but one way or another, I have participated in those. And I think the main area that I find the most interesting is insider threat. This is the one that people don't talk about a lot because there aren't currently that many ways of detecting insider threat ahead of time. And so there is very little companies can do to actually prevent it or, or find out right away, you know, if, if something's happening. Unless, of course, it's a it's a Microsoft data center where they check your weight on your way in and out, make sure you didn't take anything out of it. You know, it's pretty cool security there. So yeah, so this story happened last year. It's still really fresh in my mind because of how it was evolving, we got called into a company that experienced a ransomware attack. And the first thing that immediately jumped to us is in any typical ransomware attack, when you see files being encrypted, they usually move throughout the network in a matter of one or two minutes. And so there is no way to stop it in time. Usually it's all or nothing. And usually that ransom note look, is located in every single damn directory. You can't miss it. It's, it's everywhere. And this time it was surprisingly a partial encryption. So not all assets got compromised. Some workstations, some servers, not everything. And the ransom note was only in one particular directory, not everywhere. So that was immediately a really, really curious situation that we started investigating. And uh, as part of the routine engagement, the company was mid-sized business, but their IT team consisted of just one person, and that's their CTO. That's the only IT person in the company. Nobody else knows 
anything about computers. So when we started digging around, we sent some of my team members on site so that we could take images of, of their disks, of their servers, and, and you know take it back for analysis. So one of my employees was there. By looking at him, you would never tell that he can't speak a foreign language. So in this case, he spoke Cantonese while, but just looking at him, you wouldn't know. And the CTO just happened to own also speak Cantonese. And when they were together on site, that CTO called someone on the phone and started discussing with someone exactly what is going on, exactly the progress of investigation. What are they taking images off? What are they doing? Who is on site? You know, all the details, which you'd be surprised to learn that a person is discussing with someone, especially nobody, nobody else at the company would have been involved in that conversation. So I would say it's luck that we found out about this only because my employee understood what was being said on the phone, right next to him. So we got a little bit alarmed by this behavior, but we still didn't put any blame on anyone because you have to have facts. You can't just walk around, you know, pointing fingers and, and causing like blame. So the next thing that we went to do is we wanted to see the firewall logs and see what happened there. If we can pick up any network activity, pretty much anything. And the moment that it, it was all discussed openly in the war room together with that CTO, because again, we're taking him as a, as a friendly person. Obviously, by what how many times I'm mentioning him, I know you've <laughs> figured out who the insider threat was at this point. Uh, the next thing you know, we start talking about logging into the firewall and within an hour, the firewall gets factory reset. And everybody says, I don't know, I haven't done anything. And we asked the, the CTO itself and he said, he said, I have only done a power cycle. Power cycle should not reset the firewall, which is true. It shouldn't. But here's the, here's the thing. When you do a factory reset of specific firewalls, it resets the logs, all the logs that you previously had, but it doesn't reset the logs of the reset itself. So our records, and we immediately looked into it, and we saw that the reset, reset was performed by this person's account from, from the web console, right? So there is no two ways around it. It's either his account was compromised or it was him. And with all of the pieces of the puzzle putting together, we notified the rest of the team, and they were really, and they were in big disbelief, understandably so. Imagine that person worked at a company for 14 years, right? This is not someone new. This is someone who has been with the company. This is the only person whom they trusted to keep to keep the company safe and secure and you know all that all that good stuff. He got suspended for the time while the investigation was ongoing. And the more we kept digging, the more it looked like a very sloppy insider job, really, because we found traces of this ransomware strain being built on the server itself. If, you, if you've met any kind of attacker before and you know they will never risk spending too much time on, a, on the victim's network, not to mention actually building or developing something using the victim's resources, that's just not how it works. We found traces of Mimikatz, funny enough, containing uh, information of some other companies completely unrelated as well. So there was that interesting mix up. When we uh, 
looked at the ransom note, the note itself looked and, and matched with the um, IOCs of, of a known ransomware gang, but there was no mention of this company anywhere. And if, when we followed the link to the Tor site that they provide to chat with the attackers for negotiations, there was nothing, emptiness. The chat was there. There was nobody monitoring, nobody responding. So you could say that the chat had been used previously, right? Because they used them once per victim. So this one already looked like it was used. So we were really confused at the time as to what the reason could have been, because when you're coming in as an outsider, you don't know the inner workings of the company and what can happen. Way later, fast forward to the end of the investigation, what turned out to be the case was that this rather, well, small company, and they had very intimate relationships with each other as being employees for so many years, they had a IT provider that the original CTO really liked. And that IT provider either made some mistakes or whatever happened, they decided to choose, they switch the provider without consulting the CTO person. And so he got really, really upset. Our theory was that he probably wanted to cause this incident, then fix it by himself because he would know to come out a hero. And the note that we found, the note was deliberately placed under the directory of that new IT provider's directory, wherever they were using on the servers, right? So it was almost trying to frame them, but again, lacking some, I guess, skills to cover up your your steps and, and even the knowledge of how ransomware works. This was not a typical case. Can I ask a couple questions about the story? This is fascinating. First, like, so you were, obviously you honed in on the CTO being the insider threat. Did the CTO bring you in? Was that, like, who brought you in to do the, the work in the first place, if you can say? That's an interesting question. It was actually... The CTO and the CEO together were looking for a company. They had a connection to a to a connection of mine who is in cybersecurity, but he is in offensive. So he doesn't do incident response and, and pulled us in for this for this one. Yeah. So I'm picturing this that you're having some sort of discussion about performing forensics for them. And you're basically, you probably at the time don't know it, or you don't assume that you're talking to the insider threat at the, at the table or virtual table or whatever it was. <laughs> and they're literally shopping you to investigate themselves in a, in a sense. I, I guess my second question is how smart does this CTO think he actually is? So like, or he or she, I, I guess actually is because they had a plan, you know, to w wipe the firewalls, to do these factory resets, to eliminate some of the logs. But I mean, that wasn't good enough. I mean, a, a good forensics person can get to the bottom of this stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. And that comes with experience. You can be in a technical role for decades, but if you've never dealt with cyber, there is a good chance you wouldn't consider many of the traces, many of the places where we look for evidence, right? I mean, firewall is a pretty straightforward place. I'm surprised he didn't do it right away. Because, I mean, this is this is the one of the number one places anybody would look, right? But when we start digging further and further into emails, into OneDrive, into everything, because again, once we zeroed in on that person, we needed to investigate their personal account and see what was done on their computer. Let me just put it that way. The level of skill was not there for the position that they held, because aside from these things, we also found traces of them downloading malware thinking it was a tool to unlock a Windows machine for which they lost a password. Wow. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you about motivation? You 
described a moment ago that this individual maybe had hired an IT services company in order to ostensibly become the scapegoat, and then this CTO could be the hero. Was that the motivation or was there some sort of financial gain that would come? Like, that seems like a really elaborate series of steps just to look good to your boss. Is it that or was there more to it than that? I would say that I would think that this was it. There was no financial gain from this specific operation because the company would have never paid ransom. They had backups, they had cyber insurance, and there was no data lost, really. Whatever was encrypted, the backups were rolled out pretty fast. So the only way they could get financial gratitude out of this gratification would have been if, if the company paid ransom and they would have gotten a portion of it. Right. So in this case, consider yourself an affiliate, but somehow they got their hands on the piece of old malware that was old ransomware strain of a known ransomware gang. So wasn't even an effective one. There just seemed to be easier ways to look good to your boss <laughs> than this. Yeah, whole you could just do a good job. I mean, yeah, just do good. a good job. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You would think, but if he's been with the company for 14 years, I mean, how much better does it get? Right. What else can you prove? You've been there. They trust you. It's just not good enough. So we need to stir things up a little. You were mentioning that like the CTO was kind of a one person team, right? So they were handling everything, which is not common necessarily. I mean, you even in the smallest organizations, normally you'll have some kind of separation of roles and skills and things, you know, backups, even like, you know, we used to talk about at my old IT job, the bus test, you know, we don't, what's the test? If you get hit by a bus, can we survive? Well, in this situation, obviously not. It's so dark, Ben. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the bus test. It's a very simple, it's a very simple test. You can solve it very quickly. <laughs> anyway, my question to you though, is do you think the one man team part is kind of intentional? Like if you're operating by yourself and you hold the keys to everything and you control the policies and you know how the policies work and you know how the IT works and you know how to do things. I mean, does that make it easier to be an insider threat person? That certainly makes you cockier. That certainly makes you feel more empowered, like you're in control and you can do whatever because you also are the only one who can fix it. But it's actually not uncommon for Canadian small and medium-sized businesses. I speak from experience. I've worked predominantly with Canadian companies and this is something I see a lot. Sometimes we will have one technical person in the company and then an outsourced IT for the rest of the stuff, you know, your desktop imaging and, and hardware provisioning and stuff like that. So that was exactly the case here, except your outsourced IT also aren't security experts, so they can't help when something goes awry, especially when the ransom note was found under their own directory. So we couldn't allow them to, to participate. They're a third party, so we had to kind of keep them on the, on the bench. But this isn't actually the only insider case, and that's why I love this topic, because again, it's not easy to identify an insider threat. And then also once it happens, it's not easy to accept that one of your employees or maybe even high-level employees or executives have deliberately or sometimes unintentionally done something to, to compromise the company. We've had a case where a person was in financial trouble and through months have been channeling some financials in, in like secretly to, to their own account. And, and when the fun, when the company found discrepancy, they hired, they hired us to investigate what happened. Another problem with investigations is that whenever you come in, they want answers right away. 
and you have to manage expectations and keep and keep telling that it's not a day or a three day job. It's it's usually weeks because you have to understand the amount of logs that you have to go through the correlation, finding these patterns, you know, eliminating false positives. And there has to be a very strong feedback loop as well. I mean, we're coming in there with no context. So we're going to come back with questions. You know, is this normal? Is this part of your business function? Is this a website you usually visit and stuff like that? You can't make, we can't make conclusions based on just what we see. We have to talk to them. Can you always do it? Like, so, you know, you're talking about logs and stuff, but logging isn't necessarily something that every organization does diligently. I mean, have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone has a major incident? You're smiling. <laughs> so I think I know the answer, but I want to hear from you. Like, can you, are you sometimes between a rock and a hard place? You know, they have a major incident. You're like, look, the evidence is all burned away. It's all gone. There's nothing I can do. That is the case in 90% of, of my cases. And overwhelming majority of companies do not enable logging. Either they don't know that the logging is not enabled and they just assume that everything's all right, or they don't even know that it exists, you know, in that specific area, or they're trying to save costs because you have to maintain logs, in my opinion, at least for 90 days. I think that is the PCI requirement as well. Uh, ideally, you want to keep them for a year. We know that, you know, based on different reports, the average dwell time, the time that an attacker spends on the network before they make the serious or final move is 270 days, if I'm not mistaken, or something of the sorts. So it's multiple months, right? And you can't just jump in a, on a case and expect that you will find something that happened three days ago. Usually they, they're point of entry has been much, much earlier. So yes, that that amount of logs is going to generate quite uh, quite a bill for your storage, but it is an essential, essential part of business. And, you know, if anyone here, if your listeners are actually managing any kind of infrastructure, I urge you to go and enable all, all kinds of logging, be it in cloud or your firewalls, especially your firewalls, all of the logging, everything that you can possibly find all of it will be helpful. Why? Because when an incident happens and any forensics company comes to investigate, it's going to first of all make it so much easier and faster for them to find. So you don't have to pay such an extended bill for too many hours spent digging around. And two, it's very important to find the root cause. If you don't have the logs, we can't tell you how it happened because it could have been a million places. I mean, sure, I'll do a, a vulnerability assessment and configuration assessment of all of your assets, and I'll tell you, yeah, they could have walked in through the open RDP port, as well as through your insecure web application, as well as through, I don't know, FTP port or whatnot. And there's a bunch, bunch of opportunities, and I can't tell you which one was the culprit this time because we don't have anything to trace back to it. So you want the, the forensics company to be able to tell you how the attackers got in because that's the only way you're going to fix it going forward. We've had companies do that when they've been breached and the breach was eliminated. Eventually, they would just restore from backups. They wouldn't even rebuild their servers. And I have a story about that, too. And then they would have a secondary infection a few months later. Yeah, which is also probably a violation of any number of compliance policies, basically just trying to wipe away the evidence so 
Absolutely, but we don't have too many regulations in Canada that would mandate businesses to do anything. And that is, in my opinion, the main reason why Canadian businesses are so much behind on cybersecurity practices, because unless you're financial or healthcare, there is nobody to tell you or to fine you for doing something wrong. That's it. So what's the advice here? I heard you point out a really interesting observation that in some cases, people think that logging is enabled. And in other cases, they don't even know that it's something they should be doing. So what's the advice to those organizations? Because maybe they're slightly different problems, but it sounds like in either case, maybe they don't have the technical capacity to solve this in advance. So what's the advice to them? Well, so enabling logging is one of the big items here. And I've already covered on that because you want to be able to trace back to what happened. You want to enable logs for your databases too, to see who messed with them, who logged in, what commands they performed, what they've raised. Uh, if you are running web servers, you want to log any activity on those servers too, and make sure you know who logged in, when, what they did with the server. It's going to be helpful, not just for cyber stuff, for your regular IT issues as well. If your production fails, you want to know why, right? And same for the databases. For your firewalls, you absolutely want to log all of the traffic. If you're running a cloud environment, Azure, AWS, you want to make sure that you have all of these. In, in AWS, they're called CloudWatch and CloudTrail. You want to make sure that... I know they're, they're extra, right? Everything costs these days. It's not... A lot of these things aren't free, but they're really really worth it. They're going to save you when, when you know, the, the disaster happens. But a prerequisite for that, and before you even go ahead and enable logging, the very first, and I know that sounds ridiculously basic, but so many times I've seen this not being uh, done properly, is know your estate. Do a very thorough inventory of everything that you have. Know what kind of information is stored on every of your servers or, or SharePoint locations anywhere because we do a lot of tabletop exercises. They are mock cyber incidents, right? And then as we walk companies through these scenarios, 100% of the time, what happens is when we say, okay, so so-and-so servers have been breached, and let's say workstations or a couple of SharePoint locations, and the attackers are threatening that they're going to expose this info if you don't get in touch with them within 72 hours. And then I asked this company, what are the consequences? What happens if somebody gets access to that server? What information is stored there? And that's the moment where it hits them. And I go, I don't even know. Do we start company? Do, do we store customer data in there or anything else? They simply have, have no visibility. And when you don't know what you have, you can't protect it. So the very first basic step is make sure that you have very accurate, up-to-date inventory of the type of the data, where is it stored, how is it stored, who's got access to it, and then you can start planning your next steps. That's fascinating. We talk about threat modeling a lot in, in our line of work and uh, knowing the assets that you have to protect is critical for security. I mean, how do you even know what the proper approach is if you don't know what you're actually protecting, where it sits, et cetera? Not just that, but resource management too. I mean, to your point, you were talking about logging and how these things can be expensive. Well, if you're trying to make every dollar count, you got to make sure you, you're putting in the, your energies into the right places. Well, exactly. I mean, a lot of the things that I meet, at least in Canada anyway, is that companies see cybersecurity as a cost center, an expense. But the reality is that these days, cyber is no longer a cost center. It's, it's rather a cost of doing business. 
It's like buying an insurance. You can't do any business if you don't have insurance. Nobody's going to, you know, make partnerships with you or or renting an office if you, if you need a brick and mortar location. It's just part of your day-to-day operations. You have to have it. Otherwise, incidents, they do happen. They will happen, especially right now with the unstable political situation. We have the very well-known nation-state threats. I mean, I am Eastern European myself. I deal a lot with Russian hackers. Obviously, I read their texts, so I, I recognize their footprints when I see them. It's easy for me. And frankly, that's all I've seen in the past three years. 99% Russians, not anybody else. Here, where, where I am in Maryland, we were recently hearing about Johns Hopkins having an incident with an application Move It, which the federal government warned about, and it's being exploited by these very same types of people. Quite a, a scary situation. I think people maybe think, well, we're we're too small. We're not this big of a deal. We're not. We're just we're just a company that makes widgets or something like that. Why do they care? And the answer is because you have something you care about. That's why. <laughs> it doesn't even matter if you think you're not uh, uh, not big enough. Oh, absolutely. This is one of the, yeah, this is one of the, um, I guess, mindsets that uh, a lot of companies have. They say, I'm not important enough. I, I don't have any important information to steal. Let them steal it. No, no, don't let them steal it because they're going to make your business halt. Whatever it is that you do, they might not care for your data. Sure. But they're going to come, they're going to stop your business until you pay them off. So that's, that's that. Yeah. It's not just about data. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Well, Yana, this has been really enlightening. I think this has been helpful for our audience. Uh, as we wrap up, is there anything that you want to leave our audience with that we haven't talked about? I mean, that you want them to know about? Well, I would say, I mean, I'm I'm risking repeating a lot of cliche phrases, but you know, Let's do it. No <laughs> this, more in this industry, it. really, <laughs> <laughs> in this industry, we say it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're going to get breached. So we are in the trenches. I see this every day. Of course, it's not such a common occurrence for a non-cybersecurity related person, right? But for me, and I see this every day, and every single time I, I get called in on a case, it's the same story over and over again. Companies are not prepared. There is so much panic when the incident happens. And I mean big incidents, right? And what a lot of companies don't understand is how much work goes into responding to them. And it has to do not just with the IT and digital forensics and us digging into what happened. There is so much more to it. There is HR implications if we're dealing with insider threat, because you have to consider whether or not you can fire them with or without cause, with or without compensation based on your local labor laws. And you are risking a, a lawsuit if you don't do this right. Same for a legal counsel help, because they have to give you client attorney privilege. For instance, if you have a case and you're a C you have an incident and your CTO sends an email to your CEO saying, oh crap, we haven't done ABC and there was no lawyer involved in that message. And if that case later goes to court, that email can be subpoenaed and used as evidence of, of company's negligence or failure to comply with certain requirements. So you want to have your legal representation there one way or another. They can advise you not only in client attorney privilege, but they can also advise you in regulatory compliance requirements, especially privacy frameworks, if you have to notify some individuals. Another very important component is public communications. It is a very frowned upon practice to try and hide things. And that's what every company 
intuitively tries to do. They try to hush hush everything that happened. But trust me when I say that this is only going to backfire because again, regulations and also trust of your customers, of your partners, of your vendors. If you hush hush something that had happened that could have affected them, they're not going to like this. And you have to control the narrative before it escapes you. If somebody pushes something on Twitter and it gets out of control, you don't control the media anymore. There are executive decisions. You got to report to the board. There's so much involved in responding to an incident. So I'm going to say, make sure that you have a plan, that you have at least three to five playbooks of the most common scenarios you meet. That would be ransomware, Office 365 account compromise. These are the two that we see most of the time. And also some sort of network compromise. Consider your external footprint and kind of patch it up. So. Yeah, that's the word of wisdom of the day. <laughs> I love it. That's such, that's such good insight, such good advice to leave people with. Yana, you've been you've been amazing. Thank you for spending some time with us together today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So Ben, what did we learn from Yana? Besides the fact, by the way, that she's like Cher. She only goes by one name. <laughs> we were like, I just want to make sure I get this correct, how to introduce you. And she's like, Yana, that's it. Well, like, look, when you're the premier digital forensics person, you get to do stuff like that. Apparently. You get to be Cher. You get to be Madonna or whatever single name you want to use. That's the that's how it works. Eventually, I'll just be Ben. Uh, I mean, it. I was saying before we just got back here, I, I was in IT services for a long time, managed IT services. And a lot of the stuff she says really resonates with me, particularly the planning piece, which is you really can't, I mean... Certainly there's over planning, but knowing the reasonable potential scenarios that your organization could face in terms of security incidents, having a plan for them, making sure you have the tools in place to protect, making sure you, you have the logs in place, which is, I mean, I, I couldn't empathize more with what she said. People don't like logging for a lot of reasons, but it's so important because you, you want to first, obviously you don't want an incident to happen in the first place if you could possibly avoid it. But that may be unrealistic, even if you're doing all the right things. You have to have the parachutes in place to make sure that you can deal with these things in the right way. Just because you think that we're a small group or it doesn't matter that much or the damage wasn't that bad or whatever, you owe it to your, your customers, you owe it to your employees, the stakeholders involved in the business to, to do the right thing, plan things out and, and make sure that if you do have an incident, you can get through it smoothly. These are, it can be the difference really between a simple recovery you know, less expense, less stress, and a disaster that could really destroy a business. I found myself thinking in that episode about this idea that like logs, logging, like there's nothing sexy about that. Regulation, there's nothing sexy about it. But as she's talking about like the importance they have in a digital forensics process, I was like, maybe logs are yeah. pretty cool. You know, like- <laughs> <laughs> They're totally rad. No, I mean, they're really important. I mean, these are the things that, that forensics people go by to be able to figure out these incidents, where they come from, how they originated. If you have a cyber insurance plan and you want to be able to, you know, for example, if you actually do need to get money back or something like that, I mean, if you're not doing the right things, including logging, or if you're doing an application, you don't say, you say the wrong things that you are and you're, you're not. I mean, these could be very problematic scenarios. So it's better to make the investment, know what kind of you know, I, I talked about threat, threat modeling, know your threat model, know who's going to attack you, what assets you control, who, you know, what tools you have to protect, all that stuff. Because unless you're really in control of that and you're reviewing it constantly, someone's going to exploit the hole. And the bad guys only really have to be right once. 
They only really need to be able to find that one flaw and exploit it. And it could be immensely painful. Yeah, it's it's interesting, this particular discussion right, about the aftermath. And I think about like what we do at ISE, right, is we, we're on the other side. We're trying to prevent it. And it's really fascinating when you think about like if it's a Venn diagram, one circle is those of us from ethical hacking, pen testing, all that, like everything to try to prevent. And then the other circle in the Venn diagram is what do you do after? So incidents response, digital forensics, all that good stuff. But the overlap, the middle is the things that are shared between those two components are really this, the mission, right? Which is to try to reduce the likelihood and reduce the impact of a future breach. So like once a breach has already happened, yeah, you want to figure out what happened. Hopefully you can like prosecute the criminal, you can figure out like, or criminals maybe not the right word, but you can prosecute whoever did it. But all of those steps are in order to disincentivize other people in the future from doing this same thing. Would you agree or disagree with that? I mean, sure. I mean, we should definitely do all of those things. I, I have no argument with any of it. <laughs> nice. Argument-free zone. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, what should we leave everyone with? What pearls of wisdom? You know, I, again, I, I think planning and reassessing is super critical. I was thinking about when you were just talking about us doing assessments on the front end, we've had situations where we've done assessments and we find some hot, you know, very critical or high level vulnerabilities that can cause real damage. And sometimes it doesn't take, you know, it comes at the beginning of our test. You know, part of our process is to know, notify people. When we identify a serious vulnerability before the report comes out. You know, we want to make sure people are fixing stuff. And the reason is if we're able to find something in a few hours of testing that is really meaningful, well, imagine the implications of that. That means that your product potentially has been in in the wild in on online and has this hole open in it that anyone could exploit. And so if things are being found in testing, don't don't be surprised that someone could exploit these things in real life and turn it into something bad, which is why you need to have the incident response on the other side and have a plan to deal with it because something could happen and you just need to be prepared to respond. The longer you wait, the less resources you have to respond, the more troublesome it'll be. And you want Yana to be able to do her job well. You don't want to be in the 90% who she can't help. Yeah, that's, that is astute. I agree with you there, Ben. Well, as always, it's been fun doing this with you. For everyone listening, you can learn more about the show, our guests, and upcoming episodes at tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.